for the first time in American history, a woman of color is on a major political party's presidential ticket. The thing that Kamala Harris brings is that she's also the first historically black college and university graduate to land on a presidential ticket. It means a lot in North Carolina, which has more HBCUs than any other state. We'll talk to an HBCU graduate about all of the ramifications next on The Stump. My name is Herb White. I am Editor-in-Chief at the Charlotte Post. And the presidential campaign, for all practical purposes, is in full swing. The Democrats are just wrapping up their convention, virtually, of course. The Republicans will get underway with their convention in the following week. And the race is on for the White House. And obviously, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden are the Democratic contenders. And Senator Harris, who's from California, is also a graduate of Howard University, which is an HBCU, historically black college and university. It means something intangible in North Carolina, which has 12 HBCUs, most of any state, and it has more black college graduates and students than any other state in the union. And I asked U.S. Representative G.K. Butterfield, who represents the first congressional district in North Carolina and a graduate of North Carolina Central University and its School of Law, about what those HBCU ties mean to North Carolinians with this presidential campaign and what, if anything, the Biden-Harris ticket will try to leverage in the campaign for the White House in the Tar Heel State. We had a conversation by phone, and here's what he said. My first question is, uh, in terms of, of, of this newly formed ticket with uh, Biden and Harris, uh, what do you think Kamala Harris brings to the campaign specifically for North Carolina, considering that she's a black college graduate, obviously she's black, uh, and she's a woman, uh, what is it that she brings that could strengthen uh, Vice President Biden's chances of winning this state? Well, first of all, I know Kamala. I've known Kamala since she first came to the Senate. and I've gotten to know her husband and her sister and her brother-in-law, Tony. Uh, you know, I'm privileged to say that I call all of them friends, and so I know her intimately and personally, and I can tell you that uh, not only will will Kamala Harris, let's call it Senator Harris, not only will Senator Harris bring uh, diversity to the ticket, but also great intellect and, and, and great skill in, in leadership. Uh, you know, I, 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 I certainly, I'm a student of history, and, and I like all of the hoopla about being the first black female, and, and that certainly has its place. But we cannot overlook the fact that, that Senator Harris is prepared uh, to be vice president. She, she was the attorney general in California uh, for many years, which was a pretty, pretty large operation.
California constituency, uh, um, not just the Congressional Black Caucus, of, of which she's a part of, and, and, and we are so proud to, to, to have her and to, to represent us, but also the constituency of HBCUs, 100 HBCUs across the country. Uh, these students and these alums of, of these schools can look at Kamala Harris and, and beam with pride uh, and, and, and know that, that we are continuing to make progress in America uh, to a more perfect union. Uh, John Lewis used to talk about it all the time. Uh, and so uh, I'm excited about her being on the ticket. I look forward to campaigning with her. But she has this network. And I knew the network was there. Uh, I knew it was there, Herbert, but I didn't really, really know it was there uh, until after the announcement. Uh, there were 12 women considered. Uh, six of the 12 were African-American women. And, and Kamala Harris rose to the top. And the minute it was announced, the sororities and fraternities and HBCU Alumni Association, uh, grassroots organizations, all across my state in particular, but, but our state in particular, but all across the country. Uh, you, could, you could literally feel it. My emails and my texts, uh, my phone calls were, were just, just beaming with pride. And that translates into votes. That, that, that translates into what we call intensity. You know, it's okay to be involved in an election, but when you have intensity, uh, it, it, it matters. And so she, she, um, She's a great asset to, to Joe Biden. Would you see that then as the difference between now and, let's say, 2016, when Hillary Clinton and Tim Kaine were on the ticket, you know, that the energy is that difference between, yeah, I'll vote for, let's say, a Joe Biden out of a sense of duty versus uh, I'll vote for that ticket because I really it, want it, to sun, If the sun is shining. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, I supported Hillary Clinton. I traveled all over the country for her many times. Uh, but uh, the energy that you will see in a Biden-Harris campaign will be superior to any campaign in modern history, including Obama-Biden. You're going to see a turnout in this election greater than the Obama turnout in 2008. That is my prediction. Really? Yes, sir. It's a combination of factors. Number one, you've got to understand that um, people are pretty, pretty um, uh, disgusted, uh, and that's putting it mildly, disgusted with Donald Trump. Uh, every day is, is nothing but, but insults and division. Um, uh, his, his policies have not benefited African Americans at all, at all. You know, he, he says that they have, but they have not. Uh, and so uh, African Americans and, and progressives and, and, and moderates, you know, are disgusted uh, with, with Donald Trump and they're ready for a change. And so you take the energy from, from the, the dislike, or let's call it the disapproval. You take the energy from the disapproval of Trump and you couple that with the, the, with the enthusiasm uh, over Kamala Harris and Joe Biden's willingness to put in writing what he has been saying during the campaign. Uh, and you, you put those factors together, and you're going to have a pretty large turnout. Now, the, 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 um, 
the thing that is, is pulling against that is the pandemic. And, and we have a lot of African Americans who are at risk, um, and, and, and their health may be at risk if they come and vote in person. And, but we're getting the word out that absentee voting is available uh, for people who are not comfortable uh, in going to a polling location. And the word is getting out. People are getting absentee ballot request forms in the mail, and they're beginning to fill those out and send them back in or take them in or get a near relative to take the, the, the request form in. And these ballots will go out on September 4th. And I think right after September 4th, you're going to see a whole lot of people you know, who are going to be, be voting by absentee ballot. And so you put all of those factors together, and I think we're looking at a greater than an 80% turnout in this election. Well, that would be really good because generally even in presidential years, 80% turnout, that's, you know, that's uh, atmospheric territory there in terms of enthusiasm. 80% African-American turnout. Yeah. 80% african That is what, look, man, this is before the pandemic. Now, I would go into McDonald's, get a cup of coffee in the morning and talk to the veterans that are sitting around there playing checkers. And, I mean, that's the only thing they want to talk about. They don't want to talk about, you know, football or basketball, you know. They want to talk about what y'all want to do to get that man out, you know. Um, and, and and I hear it every day. The intensity is there. And that's what we're going to need to win North Carolina. In North Carolina, Obama won in 08, lost it in 12, lost it in 16. Uh, but right now, I think the Obama coalition is still in place, and it is growing. And the, and the, the, the Trump Trumpism is diminishing, or if it's not diminishing, well, it is diminishing because he's losing college-educated whites. And so what's left standing now would be uh, those whites with less than a college education who are registered Republican. And that, that, that group of people is shrinking. So now when you touched on earlier uh, ballot access, ballot security. Uh, talk a little bit about that in terms yeah. of what you see on the ground in North Carolina. I know a lot has been made about uh, changes at the uh, U.S. Postal Service and uh, yeah. funding going uh, away for parts of the Postal Service as a, uh, you know, what some people accuse uh, the president of, of trying to manipulate uh, access to the ballot for Americans, especially African Americans, uh, what what do you see? We have learned that Donald Trump will do anything, whether it's ethical or or not, to to enhance his reelection. That includes that includes slowing down the mail refusing to agree to a vote-by-mail system. Uh, and my committee, I'm on the Elections Committee in Congress, we, we've been proposing a vote-by-mail system, which is different from absentee voting. Vote-by-mail is where you give money to the states, and so they have the resources, and they send out a ballot to every, every voter. You don't have to ask for it. You just open the mail one day, and there it is, boom. You fill it out, and you, you get it back to the Board of Elections. That's a vote-by-mail system. Uh, and he's far as every step of the way on vote by mail. It's not going to happen because he knows, and I know, and anyone who watches this stuff knows that that if if uh, you know our base is 
given the ability to vote by mail, we're going to have a 90% turnout uh, in the election. And he knows it, and his base will not vote with that intensity. So he's done everything he can to, to uh, marginalize uh, the Democratic vote and in general, and the African-American vote in particular. That also includes uh, the post office. You know, we've been accusing Donald, accusing Donald Trump over the last few weeks of trying to uh, defund the post office, but we really didn't have proof of it. Uh, we suspected it because he, he wouldn't come to the table and talk to us about the $25 billion that we want to to uh, to appropriate to the postal system to keep it to keep it functioning. But then he came out the other day and admitted it. I mean, we were astonished that he, he went before the American people and publicly pronounced that he wants to take away funding from the post office so that he could feed, so that he could discourage voting by mail. I mean, I, I've never seen anything like it before. He admitted what he, we've been accusing him of. And so not only that, but you look at, you know, many states have changed their laws to make it more difficult. Uh, you know, thank God we've had a, a good Democratic governor in North Carolina who stood toe-to-toe with the Republicans and stop a lot of the things that have been proposed. Also, the federal courts and the state courts have been ruling, you know, in our favor, you know, with respect to uh, uh, to voter suppression and, uh, you know, voter ID and, you know, things of that nature. And so, uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's going to be a very interesting election. And would you also throw in uh, the courts have uh, have taken some steps to alleviate gerrymandering across North Carolina. Uh, you know, and I think that's yeah. one of those factors that maybe people have forgotten about or maybe not paid as much attention to lately. But can you talk to how that could potentially impact the election in 2020? Well, I'm an expert on gerrymandering. I'm not an expert on a whole lot of things, but I'm an expert on, on this subject. Uh, I did voter rights litigation when I was a lawyer, and uh, you know I'm on the elections committee in Congress. Um, yeah, that's a big deal. Uh, Republicans. Let me take you back 30, 40 years ago. The old-fashioned way of, of drawing district boundaries is to use natural, natural boundaries, creeks and streams and highways, and you know, as you know, as, as the boundary for for precincts and for districts. Uh, but now with technology, uh, you, with, 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 with map-drawing technology, you can actually drill right down to the household. You know, you don't have to use, you know, uh, you know a highway, you know, Highway 85 as, as being the boundary for a congressional district. You can actually drill down and divide a block in half. Um, and, and we have what is called zero-deviation redistricting which means that every single district has got to be the same size. When I say the same size, I mean like within one, uh, within one. You know, it used to be a tie. It used to be plus or minus 5%. No, those days are gone now. It's down to one. Why? Because we have the, the, the technology to do that. And so using the technology, all, we are also able to determine it's called predictive something else. I forgot. Predictive something. You can predict how a voter is going to vote. I mean, that's the that's the age that we live in now. I mean, it's not 100% accurate. 
uh, but they look at 30 or 40 data points. They look at your, your spending habits. They look at your education level, your income level, where you live in a community, uh, whether, you, whether you're active in church, and, and they can figure that out. Uh, because, you know, they, they have cookies on the Internet when they follow you, when you, you know, go online, when you go to the CVS to make a purchase, you swipe that card and get a $2 discount, but they're collecting your data. They know what you're buying, and they can make assumptions based on your spending uh, habits. And so they use that data to predict how people are going to vote. And so the Republicans have used this technology to their advantage because they were in charge of drawing the line. And so they drew 13 congressional districts back in 2011 and drew three of them as Democratic districts and the other 10 as Republican. And, 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 we, and, and right now there are more Democrats in North Carolina than Republicans. But yet we only have three out of 13 Democratic seats. And so we, 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 we said, file. You know, you can't do that. We, we're going to sue you. We went to court and we claimed racial gerrymandering. We said, look, the Republicans took all these black voters and packed them into District 12, which is up there where you are, uh, District 1, which is my district, and District 4, which is Durham. You've packed, taken all these black folk and packed them into three districts, which means that the other districts are more white and more Republican. And so we sued, and we won the case. And the court told the legislature, you know, you need to unpack those black folk that you have packed into those districts. And the legislature did it. But what they did when they unpacked them, they didn't put them in two or three districts. They kind of spread them out all over the state. And so even though the black, the Democratic percentage in other districts increased, it was not enough to change the, the 310 split. And so we continue to live with a 310 map. But then... Eric Holder came along and said, look, you know, we need to try another another technique. We're going to call this one political gerrymandering. They may not, you know, we may not be able to get anywhere now with race, but they did it for political reasons if they do it, didn't do it for racial reasons. So during the, during the first case, the chairman of the redistricting committee, David Lewis, out of Johnston County, made a statement to the court. He said, look, the only reason we drew a map that was 10 Republicans and three Democrats is because we couldn't find a way to do 11 Republicans and two Democrats. I mean, very arrogantly said it on the record. And then he said, and the reason is because Republican congressmen are better than Democratic congressmen. And so we captured those statements. And so Eric Holder said, well, let's try this thing again. Let's go to federal court. Let's claim political gerrymandering. Went to trial, won the case. Went to the appellate court, won the case. Went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court, in a 4-3, I guess it was, decision, said, ain't no such thing as political gerrymandering under the U.S. Constitution. We're throwing you out of court. Throw us out of court. But in the case, the justice kind of suggested that maybe you all could win this case in state court under your state constitution. <clears throat> but you cannot do it in federal court. And so Eric Holder came over and met with Matt Pelosi and me and one or two other people and said, look, I know we're getting close to the election, but I think we ought to try this thing in state court. Let's file a lawsuit, and I'm going to move for a preliminary injunction. 
And if we get the injunction, they're not going to appeal it because look who's on the Supreme Court now. Sherry Beasley, Mike Morgan, Mark Davis, Anita Earls. They're not going to appeal this to the state Supreme Court because they know the court would rule um, correctly, would rule favorably. So we think if we win this thing at the trial level on summary judgment, we can, we can get something done. So that's what Eric Holder did. He filed his lawsuit, went to court, got a preliminary injunction, and the Republicans didn't appeal it. Then the legislature had to very quickly draw a new map. And that's when they cut out Mark Walker up in Winston-Salem, and they cut out George Holding down in Raleigh and redrew the lines. And then they have two more districts down in Fayetteville and down below Fayetteville, which goes all the way over to uh, District 9, goes all the way into uh, eastern Mecklenburg County. And so now we have four brand-new districts. Two are certain to elect two more Democrats, and two others are possibly going to elect two more Democrats. And of the four new seats, four nominees, Democratic nominees, are women, and two of the four are black. So that's why I am so excited about this election. And so you talked about uh, the possibility of electing multiple more black women uh, to the congressional delegation. Uh, Alma Adams right now is the only one. Yeah. Uh, do you see yes. uh, something where something is definitely in the water uh, politically these days, uh, and it looks like the political class has awakened to the realization that black women are a force unto themselves politically. Uh, how does that yes, make sir. you feel? Are, are yes, you excited by that, or it, or are people well, just coming that. to the I've party? I've known it for years because I'm a numbers person. I've known it for years. I've known years that black women are the backbone of the Democratic Party uh, in North Carolina and in many other states, not in every state, but in, in many states across the country. It's black women that are the backbone and, and the most faithful uh, 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 group within the Democratic base. Uh, and and, and it's, it's about time. It's, it's overdue. It's, it's long overdue uh, having black women step up to the plate. I mean, look at Yvonne Lewis Hawley. I'm a nominee for lieutenant governor. I mean, that's powerful to have it, and she's going to win this thing. Uh, have an African American female as lieutenant governor of North Carolina, chief justice of our Supreme Court. You know, I mean, look at Anita Earls on the Supreme Court. You know, black women have flexed their muscles, and now they are getting a return on investment. Very good. Very good. So, uh, yeah. when you. Yeah. When you boil everything down, you know, you, we're talking about a pandemic. <laughs> we're talking about uh, the economic hardships that everybody is facing. Uh, it seems as if it, it's especially dire uh, for African Americans. Uh, to, to come back to the HBCUs again, uh, President Trump uh, loves to tout what he's done for black colleges with, with extra money going in for infrastructure, that sort of thing. Uh, that even during the Obama years, uh, he took some flack from HBCU presidents and chancellors on policy that left many of their students unable to continue on. Uh, is, is that something where you can look at what President Trump has done compared to what Vice President Biden 
and Senator Harris are talking about doing in their policy. And, you know, is that two competing good ideas or is one much better than the other? President Trump has done very little for HBCUs except to engage in, 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 in untrue rhetoric. Uh, President Obama uh, did a lot for HBCUs, but what, what Joe Biden proposes is far superior uh, to, to any, any past administration in supporting African-American students. Uh, I encourage you to look at the, uh, the, the, the Biden plan, the Lift Every Voice plan. I'm sure you, you probably already read it. Might have it in front of you, but, but it, it goes into very deep, much detail, you know, talking about making college affordable, you know, for black students. And, and, you know, we've had presidents before to, to give us lip service, but this man has put it in writing. Uh, Joe Biden has, has published what he plans to do for black America. And, and, and I am, I am just, just so thrilled, uh, that, that he, he is, um, visionary. He listens. Uh, we've made the case to, to, uh, to the campaign that they really need to, to be very aggressive in their, their policy positions in the campaign, and they've done that. Make colleges and universities tuition free for students with family incomes below $125,000. I don't know what percentage of black households that is, but it's, it's probably 80% of them. Don't quote me on that, but it's a very large number, you know, who come from homes that make less than $125,000 a year. You know, two years of community college, uh, $70 billion for HBCUs and minority-serving institutions, uh, and the list goes on. Make HBCUs more affordable for their students, $18 billion in grants to four-year HBCUs, um, uh, reduce disparities in funding, invest $10 billion to create at least 200 new centers of excellence that serve as research incubators. Uh, this man has put it in writing. Build the high-tech labs and facilities and digital infrastructure needed for learning. Uh, invest $5 billion in graduate programs for teaching healthcare and STEM. Uh, and, and the way this thing works, uh, I didn't really fully understand it before I went to Congress, but the way the federal budget works is that the opening set, opening shot in the budget deal, budget negotiations comes from the president. The first week of February, the president by law is supposed to, to present a proposed budget. And that becomes the blueprint. That becomes, you know, where you start. That's the template for creating the, the appropriations for the next fiscal year. And so if he puts all of this, or at least most of this, can't, maybe he can't do it all in one year, but if he puts a lot of this in his, in his opening, in his, in his first round of budgeting, then that becomes the template for the whole budgetary process. And remember, before anything becomes law, it has to have the signature of the president. So that's the power. That's, that's the power of the executive in, in the federal government. So when, when Biden puts this stuff on paper, there's a high probability that it will happen. Very good. So I do appreciate yeah. you taking the time to to talk to me today. Sounds yeah. like you've got a lot yeah. of stuff going on there. And uh, obviously you are a real student of, of politics and how it yeah. all works and everything. And yeah. so I do appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you for listening to me. Okay. Call me at a time. Thanks to Representative G.K. Butterfield for spending some time with us on The Stump. 
You can check us out on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. You can even check us out on our website, thecharlottepost.com. And please view us on our social media as well. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. We're all there. And by all means, check us out on our website, thecharlottepost.com. And become a subscriber. You know, we don't do this just to do anything other than to serve you, our listeners and our readers. So it costs time, money, equipment to be able to pull this off. So please give us some consideration to become a reader and a subscriber to the Charlotte Post and support us in our mission to bring journalism to you wherever you might be, whether it's with a podcast or video or our print publications. Just go to the charlottepost.com, click on the on the subscriptions tab and join us. We'll appreciate your faith in us to be able to carry on the journalistic mission that we are here to do. So thanks for listening. Have a great day. My name is Herb White.